0: Hi, folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. Obviously, we need you to put your hands in your pockets and join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. The link is in the podcast you're listening to right now. It's the easiest bit of activism you can do once a month. And for the price of a fancy cup of coffee and a scone, you get access to all of our podcasts as quickly as we can turn them around, including a brilliant conversation we had in the last couple of hours with Konstantin Gordiev in Denver, Colorado. And that's out right now alongside all of our back catalogue of over 1,300 podcasts in one consolidated feed, so you never miss an episode. The Echo Chamber's had huge growth in the last few months, and I want to say thank you to everybody who's listening and sharing and liking, but independent media costs money, and we believe in the pay-it-forward model. We think Patreon is the way forward, so I don't have to do live reads for mattresses or the government of Ireland, and we certainly won't be taking any editorial control from people who are concerned about corporate interests. So if you like what we do and you want to keep it free, free for everyone, you can pay it forward right now by clicking that link one more time patreon.com forward slash tortoise I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sam McElwain and I'm joined as always by my pod brother, Gareth Mulvana. And tonight, Gareth, we're joined by, well, the block. I'm going to read through this, and it doesn't do him justice. He's an ex-lawless prisoner, he's a poet and a playwright. And his new play, The Man Who Swallowed the Dictionary, is about to launch in
2: the lyric. How you doing, Bino? I'm doing fine, Sean. Thank you.
3: Thanks, Beano. I think it's been all of uh, 10 minutes since we last talked.
2: Yeah, not a problem, Gareth. Thanks. And, then, and thanks both uh, to both of you for all your support along the way. It, it means a lot to me.
3: Not at all. I mean... It must be a relief to see the play finally being staged. I know it's been a labour of love for you, so can you tell us about the journey you've been on with it?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, oh well, it's, it's a long journey. Um, sometimes it, it was it was um, enjoyable. Sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes it was frustrating. Davy Davey, Davey Irvin, uh, who, who I was friends with and, and had known for 50 years, uh, um, died in January 2007. In January 2008, and this was before my first play, Reason to Believe in Doubt, I, I had a notion of, of doing something around Davy's legacy, because I thought he warranted it. Um, as, as a leader, I thought of working class loyalism, who took huge risks, And trying to move um, loyalism forward. Uh, So uh, basically what I did was I went to his brother Brian who at that stage I think was deputy leader of the PUP to Dawn Purvis and asked him, I told him that, that I had an idea of writing something about Davey, did he want to collaborate and he said to me, No, but in a constructive way, he says, I've no problems with you doing anything yourself, but it's just a wee bit too fresh for me. Um but but do do what you're doing. That was two thousand and eight. I continued to raid at it periodically and um but I never ever finished it. I got it about halfway there, I would I would imagine. Um and during during that period though I was lucky enough to get a small amount of funding to put some of the minor scenes on, and I can remember doing that in the scanners. I think I remember in the Crumlin Road Jail as well which were probably, I think you were at Gareth at, at, at both of them, but the, the thing was that there didn't seem to be too much interest in it, so it went into the bottom drawer. That was it for, for years, and I lost the impetus, and I lost Basically, I lost the interest in, in, in continuing until um, 2021 when I was contacted um, on a different matter by Martin Lynch, uh, who's the, the uh, director of, of Green Shoe Productions, and said to me, whatever happened to the stuff you're writing about about David Irvine? And I said to him, it's, it's more or less shelved, he said, send me what you have. I did that and he came back to me and says, well, Green Sheet would like the commission to finish the play. Um, that, that was brilliant news, brilliant, but it, it also was, um, it, it, it became very, not problematic, but it, it, it caused me a lot of anxiety that here I was for the first time in my life writing the deadlines and, and writing for a commission. And I found that well, I found that quite challenging and I found it um quite difficult. But but long story short, um I completed um last year to 2022, um after a lot of two and fro, and Martin sent it to Jimmy Fay, who's an artistic director of, of the Lurie Theatre, and he came back and said, Yes, we want to put that on as part of our spring programme, twenty twenty three. Then, when when you was going into production, um, Matthew McElhaney came in as director, and Matthew, as you know, was the son of Mary Jones and A. McElhaney, and as a director in his own right, and an actor in his own right, and then uh, it caused me to rewrite a lot again, so <laughs> it was double, double the anxiety, if you like, and and um, hence, well, it's going out Tuesday night, so the, the, those um. Those long days and long nights are are hopefully not in vain.
3: So you started working on a piece about Davy a year on from his death. So that would have been you know early two thousand and eight, and the play's coming out now. But in those fifteen years, you actually uh, produced two other very well received plays. The first being Reason to Believe, and the second being Tartan. So for for people who aren't familiar with your work and and the trajectory that you've gone through with those plays, can you talk a wee bit about them to give people an idea?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, re- reason to believe came about, and um, I'm just them to writing. To be honest, I no, I had no, um, I had no reason to be writing drama as such. I just wrote, and um, uh, a lot of it, uh, a lot of it found to quite early. Um, was more interested in maybe short stories stuff like that, maybe a bit of poetry and prose. But 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 I didn't show it to many people because I wasn't confident and and, and I didn't know um, if it was good enough, you know. But I always I always at, at that stage, you always sent some of them stuff to two or three people who I trusted, who would say tell me yes or no, and unbeknown to me, for the reason to believe play which was in 2009 i'd start i'd also started writing it in late 2008 and the story behind that is that i had a a a very very close friend who was one of the funniest people ever met in my life and he was a real character and he was diagnosed with with um terminal cancer in 2008 and i had this idea about him and that's how that particular play developed Anybody who's seen the player, or anybody who hasn't doesn't matter. It was um, two old friends with a parliamentary background. Um, I found out at the same time that both terminal cancer. They didn't want to be seen or um, perceived as two old hands who achieved nothing. So they hatched this dopey plan to, to rob a bank. And there were two 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 older men at the time. But anyway, it was a it was a dark comedy as such, but based based on my friend having having terminal cancer, you know, and and that the, the uh the script that I sent out to a couple of different people, unbeknownst to me, one of them sent it to Joe Wigan, God rest her, she died at Christmas, um, and uh, and was great loss to to the arts here. And she contacted me. I didn't know Joe. She contacted me and says, "I get you a reading for us." What she did, and she got a few quid together, and we had a reading over in um, the
3: university
2: in New York Street. And the reading was was done by four people: Math, our sorry David Ireland, um, Don Gordon, Abigail McGibbon. And um even Little. They were complimentary about it and said, ah, I could go places go places. Out of that there, the the, the you know probably at the past of Joe, Joe drove it. And luckily enough, we got funding to put it on and was put on a couple of community venues um around Belfast. It was well attended and well received. After that, um Continued writing. Um, the next, the next thing it did that achieved that sort of status was Tartan, which was two thousand fourteen. And I think most people who know me know that Tartan was largely autobiographical. Um, it charted, um, in a fictional way, um, my life from maybe 15, 16 uh, up until seventeen, where I went through the gang culture which was a Tart movement in, in um nineteen seventy-one, seventy-two, late seventies, seventy-one, seventy-two, until I joined the Red Hand Commando in, in the twentieth of July nineteen seventy, and that was the night before um Bloody Friday. And that was the basis of the Tartan um play, in that it, it showed young guys who had some sort of motivation to in a sectarian way, I must add to, to do what they thought was right to to keep um, Ulster British, uh, and this was in the light off. Um, maybe some um, uh, from from politicians. You you had the these lead ons. Um, you had politicians telling you, you we're doing right, and you, and 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 you, you you had all that sort of stuff going on at the time, and you also had the rise of paramilitarism, particularly amongst the UDA in early 1972, that was encouraging young people to, to join and 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 do things that they wanted them to do.
1: You know, you mentioned Bloody Friday there, and you, yeah. you, joined, you signed up just before it. But it's quoted as as Davy Irvine himself joined up after it in a a reaction to it. And that was the pivotal moment in his life where it changed direction. And me and Gareth, and you yourself as well, we can point to different people on different pivotal Mm -hmm. points, including the four-step bombing and and stuff like that. Your one came slightly before, but do you think the likes of those atrocities give fire to those sort of politicians you're talking about to lead us down these paths? Do Do you think that's sort of just... Perpetuates what they're doing.
2: I, 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 I do agree with you, Sam. I, I, I mean, it's, it's something that was mentioned on, on Talk Back on, on, on Freddy with William Crawley, where Brown Irvin said the same thing, Davy's brother, that Davy um, said that that the pivotal point for him was, was Bloody Freddy and enough was enough, something had to be done. And that's portrayed in the, in, in the play quite strongly. But if you go back a year to August nineteen seventy-one, where you had internment, or to January nineteen seventy-two, where you had um, the other bloody day, which was Bloody Sunday, they were pivotal moments for the republican movement for recruiting young, not now, maybe sometime, not young people into the republican movement until the provincial IRA, and that's what happened. Now, from my perspective. And and from from what I remember and growing up and through that period, yeah, yeah, those those politicians influenced me. No, I I can remember going to 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 a parade and uh, in um the Victoria Park in September of nineteen seventy one. Now that was a month after internment, where we had our tartan gear on, our sorry, our Wrangler <laughs> gear on tartan gang members with a bit of tartan about us and we were inspected by Bill Craig Austin Ardell Paisley who recommended that we were the people to take the fight forward you know and it was then that you started hearing the terms liquidate the enemy or we need to build dossiers on the enemy you know I, I didn't need to, told that because from August 1971 I was making bombs as a 16-year-old. I was arrested for making those bombs, still as a 16-year-old in early 1972. Paisley didn't put me in long case. I, I, I was quite capable of doing that myself, but the narrative from and, and, and bear in these not, not only were elected politicians Bill Craig was, sac- or was, was uh, Home Affairs Minister. Paisley was a leading politician plus a leading cleric. These people were waking it up from a background knowing that a working class knee-jerk reaction would result in massive recruitment for whatever paramilitary organisations were arising at the time.
3: So Bino you first entered the jail system in early nineteen seventy-three and Davy then was arrested in November nineteen seventy four. So there was a bit of time elapsed there between the two of you entering the system, but can you tell me about when you did finally meet Davy in um jail and, and what that was like?
2: No, 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 I knew him. I knew him and the, and the reason I knew him was because he, he was you know, he had those factions at the time before even before the Tartan gangs, you had that gang culture. You know, I came from Woodstock Road. You had a gang which was called the Young Haytons, which begat the Woodstock Tartan. And basically you went around different districts fighting with all their gangs. And one of the gangs you fought with was quite infamous, but they came from about four or 500 yards from where we lived, was the Ladley Hall. And the Ladley had a fierce reputation. Davey was part of Ladley. I knew he played for Ladley Boys Football Club. That's the only way I knew Davey um, at at that particular time. But what 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 I would say, uh, or what I would say, um, Gareth, is that you know I don't doubt that Davey was inspired to join the organisation by Bloody Freddy and I know going back to even previous things like the murder of Robert McFarland in September 1971, people were, were saying, no, we need to do something, we need to combat this here. And infamously, he was, he was killed in, a, in one of those uh, torture murders and, and was found in a short strand. But for me, I, I didn't. I, it was an accumulative thing with me that that I was involved I just thought I needed to do something from a very early age I continued to do that as a freelancer or as part of the Tartan gang until mid 1972 when when I joined the organisation but I understand those in inverted commas pivotal moments for people that says you know you've heard the Balmoral um, bombing on the shankle uh, bloody bloody Friday whatever you know and i get that i know i know that happened and i know it's a fact but that wasn't the case for me
3: so i think there was a stage in this period where you know davy was in long cash um he was part of that system and that culture at the time but then there, there came a stage where you ended up in mcgilligan can you talk about the process that led to that and the reasons for that
2: that's right. Um, I I I had been in on on the bombing charge on the um, possession of pipe bombs and and blast bombs. I was arrested for that in March nineteen seventy two, as a sixteen year old. I was sentenced in February nineteen seventy three, as a sixteen year old. I was I was charged with a, a escape, and early April 1973 when I just turned 18, and then subsequently uh, I served my sentence for the, those charges uh, in case mostly in compound 11, sometimes in compound 18 and 19 um, after, after fire on N13. When I, I was rearrested arrested the, the charge, the, the murder charge that I was charged with happened whilst I was on parole in February 1975. And I wasn't released. I was a re, re- at the gate the, on the day I was getting out. It was 11th of March, 1975. I was rearrested by by tactics at the gate of cash Prison and taken straight to Castle Ray. subsequently charged with murder and returned to Crumlin Road Jail, so I didn't get out. The first day I was in, uh, uh, I was a uh, re- recharged in, in B-Wing, in, in, in the old Cromwell Road Jail and I was in the cell of my own and I heard what I thought somebody called my name, climbed up, looked out the window and there was a guy standing there who I didn't even recognise and he said to me, you don't really know me I'm Davy Irvine blah blah blah, I heard you're you've just been arrested and oh, he says well here and he gave me a packet of digestive biscuits and a bottle of um, orange cordial And that was the first I'd really met him. Um, And that was in probably March
3: the 16th, 1975. So can you tell me a bit about what Davey was like in Long Cash? I mean, did he buy into the culture of what Gusty was trying to do when he arrived? Or was there ever any resistance because of her? Both sides of the story were... You know, some people say he was very articulate and political and in the negotiations from, from the very beginning in the in the Long Cash context. Other people say he bought into the militant culture and he was still very much, you know, a diehard in that respect. So can you talk a wee bit about the um, the sort of uh, dynamics of that,
2: please? Well, David was sentenced then and went to company um, 18 Long Cash. and... Um, where, where Gusty was at the time. I was then um, returned for trial and went to Compound 20, which is a remand um, compound for both UDN and UVF prisoners. So I was able to talk to they when they were going to football or at the wire, shouting through the wire and stuff like that there to him. But I was returned for trial the end of September in 1975 and when I was sentenced in 30th of September, I think it might have been, I was returned, I was I was sent to McGilligan because at that time Longcase was overcrowded and we were sending people to McGilligan. So I went to McGilligan basically at the start of October 1975. Um, I stayed there for almost exactly two years when the compounds closed in McGilligan because of lack of numbers and we were returned. Well, UVF I'm talking about UVF right Hand. We were returned along Cash, thirty of us, in October nineteen seventy-seven. And and they split us up into three compounds. It was eighteen, nineteen and twenty-one. Gussie was in twenty one. I was sent into compound eighteen. And that's where Davy was. Davy was in eighteen. So that's basically when I met up with him again.
1: And it's, you're talking about being transferred there from McGilligan back down to Cash. Yeah. The integration of those prisoners
2: back into the system didn't exactly go swimmingly, did it? No, no, it was it was a bit harrowing, and it was it was very problematical. Um, what actually happened was we had and um, and McGilligan um, when we were down to those low numbers. There's only thirty of us left. We had uh, ROC of the compound was Joe Bennett who infam- infamously became a supergrass, and now dead. But Joe Joe talked the talk, and and basically what he was saying was nobody's going to tell us the royal us what we're going to do when we go back down to Long Cash. When you were we're going, but we were informed about ten days beforehand that we we're going down on a on, on a date, um, a date in October uh, where the tour down by Wessex helicopter and joe says we'll all stick together we'll be okay nobody's going to tell us what to do we'll get our old camp and all that sort of crap and of course gusty being the smart sort of guy he was whether he spoke to the authorities or not i don't know but by the time we get down to long case that sunday afternoon they split us into three groups 10 I was into 18, 10 I was into 19, 10 I was into 21. Joe was went, went into 21 where Gusty was and Gusty immediately made him up to a rank that was unheard of, 3IC. And that was the end of any protest that we were going to have. So, uh, uh, you know, and then there was a lot of walkouts. There was, there was people who weren't happy with the Long cash regime because it was seen as too strict. And I think on that first Sunday that we moved down, between six and eight, maybe nine, people walked out of the compound. Some went and were received by UDA in compound 16 or 17, and some went straight to H-blocks, which 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 were sort of in, in their infancy at the time.
3: And can you talk about how he was supportive and, and generous to you when you were released uh, but but my,
2: my, my my memories, Gareth, would be that I I was divorced from him for two years. So when Davy moved down to Longcash, and went down to Company 18, where apparently he came under Gusty's tutelage. Um, I I can't I can't talk about that because I wasn't there, you know, and it's unfair for 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 me to speculate about it either. But but what what I do know is that. He became a, he became an officer, you know, which suggests to me that he bought into the process. You know, he was an officer. He was CSM, I think, of of, of compound eighteen. Maybe RSM. I'm, I'm almost certain CSM, but what was company sergeant major. But, and long case was running on those lines at the time. You know, as you know, now um, when I I went into um eighteen in October. I moved voluntarily to compound 21 which was Gussie's compound and there's there's a funny story around that there because um there, there was a lot of stuff um in long case that time about inter compound football and um compound 21 was seen as the best UVF football team and the, the story goes that they wanted me up because I I wasn't a bad player in my own mind anyway. So I moved on the first of January nineteen seventy eight to to Camp Pound eighteen. And um then later on, I think it was late seventy eight. Early seventy nine In late seventy eight compound eighteen closed after the fainting of a, a tunnel and Davy moved up into up on, up into twenty one. So from then, until his release, which I think was 1980, I'm right, I'm not sure, I think it was 1980, Um, I, I, I was I was very close with him, yeah. Yes. A nickname? He had, he had lots of nicknames. Some of them not repeatable, but, but the ones I remember him by would be Blunderman, because he was prone to a few accidents, you know, or Bomber. Bomber was probably his most prolific one, because... You know, there was there was him and what we called a bit of a think tank, who were all university uh, open university sort of students, um, Joe Wallace, um, Billy stream um but a lot of them would have would have watched religiously university challenge. You know, and um if they knew answers like like the rest of us when you watch a quiz programme, you knew answers, you showed them out. If you didn't know answers, you look stupid. You know, but but Davy had had. He, he was called, you know, um, not not in a bad way or not nothing in but But Davy was always he 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 has a real good sense of humour. I thought, from from my point of view, he he was deep sort of character. But he had this this, this thing about him that you know he liked giving the nicknames out as well. You know, he accepted Bomber, he accepted Blunderman, all all the stuff like that day. But for instance, there there was a guy who who Davy would have been friendly with at that time, a uh, we we, we a guy called Billy McIlroy, um, who who was from East Belfast, and at that, it that this was this times early eighties. You know, there's a famous German footballer called Carl Heinz Rummenigge. I think some people remember him, but we Billy would have got up in the middle of the night and open cupboards looking for biscuits and crisps and stuff like that. You know, Davey christened him Carl Haynes, Rummiger. You know, I I had this, we had this system where you could listen on earphones, a wee singer we had, that you could listen the earphones to a hot radio, without the hot radio being turned up at night. I listened to a wee bit of late night jazz and stuff like that. He called, because I was small, there was a um there was a, a presenter at the time on a jazz musician called um, Humphrey Little Littleton. So Davy christened me Humphrey Little One. You know, and then he had a he had a real good sense of humor. I have I have great memories of Davey, of, of Davy, not just in prison but but afterwards where he was also um very, very kind to me and very supportive of me. Davy owned a wee corner shop at the corner of my Lady's Road. The shop's still there. Davy's not. It's just over across from a, the Longfellow Bar and one of the first things I did was end up on Right and I was down behind the counter, you know, and he gave me a couple of pounds out of the tell said, get yourself a drink, blah blah blah. And from me and I I started drinking on Longfellow at the time. And he was a constant fixture between there and the Raven Club. And, and there was always there. When he went for the council elections, uh, I went and canvassed for him, although I was never a member of the PUP. And, but it all was this great affinity with him, you know, despite him being a Glenn man. But he, he, was, um, he was just so good to me. And then in and, and later years when I worked for Epic, and I had an office in Newton Ar road um the PUP opened their office beside ours uh, East Belfast the Victoria branch and we were constant partners you know had about breakfast they had a bought breakfast so we went and sat with each other and stuff but but he was just a nice person to be around really really nice person to be around and a humble person very knowledge knowledgeable as as we all know, but he was just he was just a good guy.
3: David was very generous with his time. I mean, I've got direct experience of that from from being a postgraduate student when he gave me so much of his time and even missed some council meetings to to talk to me. But do you think ultimately he overstretched himself?
2: Well, I, I think I think looking back now, and and bear in mind, he's 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 um, dead sixteen years. You know, which is incredible. He would have been seventy this year. Um which I find a wee, wee bit sort of hard to take in. But I I think he achieved so much in a short period of time that he maybe maybe he was overachieving. I, I, I don't know. I, I just think that he was maybe a wee bit of a victim of his own um success that happened over a very, very short period of time.
3: Mm-hmm. Um were there any mythologies? Around David, that you wanted to explore or challenge in the play.
2: Um, well, I mean, I mean, from 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 a a writer's point of view, you always take a wee bit of artistic license, which I think's due to you. Um, anybody that's gone from Tuesday night onwards, they're they're not necessarily going to see um, a chronological. Well, they, they are going to say a chronological account of David's life to a certain extent, but it's 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 you know, and it also could be described as warts and all. But um, I I don't think there's as a mythology around him. I I think Gareth is what you see is what you got. You know, that's the way I always felt about him. I mean, you you've, you've read his book, you you know him, you interviewed him, you've met him. Um, I don't think there's any um mythology or other ways about him. I, I think in my opinion and again I, I wouldn't say and I'm building Davy up here to be an icon but uh from from my point of view what what you say is what you got. I'm with and I and I hope I hope the play portrays that me yeah.
1: One of, one of the things I had written down earlier on in sort of the notes before this was sometimes people hold Davy up to be some sort of political saint. Um, we would be in a better position with him. And that is to the extent true, but they put a lot of distance between Davy and his past life, how he got the jail in the first place. They they don't yeah. tend to put the two Davies together, where if you look at other characters... That we have around, if you want to look at his, his running mate uh, Billy Hudson, they mm-hmm. they're inextricably linked. When they talk about Billy, they always go back to the prisoner and the loyalists and the power of military. Mm-hmm. Billy, where with Davy, they sort of let that go, um, mm-hmm. and and they they elevated Davy above that for some reason. And mm-hmm. I think it's just because the way he carried himself. Sometimes he just he seemed aloof mm-hmm. is not the right word, but he just seemed to be able to rise through the echelons of, of where he was and just. React to the company that he was in.
2: Well, like, um, say, to say other ways. Sam, I, I think I, I would put and hotchy down, which would never do, because I think he was a great servant to loyalism, and I think he was a great service to, um, to both the the, the um, council and, and to 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 storm while he was there. But no, no, there's there's a certain amount of 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 truth in what what you're saying. Davey had this, um, I, I think, he had this gift that he could fly with the eagles, but he could sit with the pigeons as well. You know, if you'd have went and seen Davey sitting in the Raven Club on a Friday afternoon after work, having a pat, drinking Pets against Guinness, talking a load of crap with other Glentorn men or whatever about the next day's match, but, but, but this is someone who graced the White House, Downing Street. You know, Carter was a power. And he had the capacity to do that. You know, hence the title of the play is The Man Who Swallowed the Dictionary. right? And and, and I know some people are saying, ah, that's a wee bit derogatory. You know, I, I don't feel it is. I To me, it's saying that this guy could be up at the top with people, you know, Senator George Mitchell, American government, Free State government, British government, or Brigade staff. He had the capacity to do it, and I think he'd done it very, very well.
3: Just thinking, you know, one thing we talk about quite a lot, Bino, you know, know, nearly... Every time there's been an event done or, you know, a talk or something we've attended together uh, in relation to loyalism, we we'll go back to this idea of stories disappearing. And I mean, obviously, Henry Sinnerton had done the book on, on Davy's life, but you've propelled that into another sort of um, arena here with with the play. So it's being recorded for posterity and, you know, Ed Maloney had done the same with Voices from the Grave. But I'm, ju- I'm just wondering... I'm going to ask an obvious question, I know the answer to it, but are stories disappearing and, and what can we do to stop those stories disappearing, particularly within loyalism?
2: Well, um, no, no I, I agree with you. And you're right, it is something we have spoke about at length. Um, I, I, as you know, and, I, and again, I wouldn't be blowing my own trumpet, but I, I've I've tried on different occasions. To work. I, I've worked with SAPIC, I've worked on my own, I work now in a volunteer capacity with, with a couple of different groups, one's the Act Initiative, one's survivors survivors of suicide in fast Um and I think it's important that that those stories, whatever they are, be told. Um from the, the perspective you're talking about is that you know, we we had a thing last November in Crumlin Road jail where it was all old compound men were were attended this function and the youngest person in the room you had to be an old compound man the youngest person in the room was 65 the oldest was 93 right so you don't need to be a brain surgeon to work it out people are going to die from November to the end of January this year after the after November get together four of them had passed on so there's four stories going unless they're um, collected this year, I have been working with the Act initiative to to uh, gather narratives from old compound men. The date of of interviewed fourteen people from a, a, a wide range of areas uh, throughout um, Northern Ireland, and a uh, uh, plan to complete that. There, there's twenty one in total. I I have another seven people to interview, and their stories are immense. But the thing is, you know, if they're not told and, and there's a couple of ways of looking at this here, if they're not told, they're lost, or someone else will tell them. And that's that's what I don't want. You know, and I repeat this and I've said it to you on a number of occasions, I've said it to a load of people. When you look at a book that the Provis produced called Normically Serve My Time, um it's the best book about prison I've I've read. And and the conflict here, why it was written by the men themselves who was there. Nobody else could tell tell those stories, and I think that's that's something that I would strive for. Though those stories need to be told. As we speak, I know of three or four ex compound men who are seriously ill. You know, they pass on their stories are gone unless they're recorded. Yep, yeah, you know,
1: I'd be, I'd be. S- singing those words as well to everybody I can. We, we are losing first-hand accounts. We're going to get a second-hand account, and as well-meaning as they are, they're not as accurate. And they don't capture it. I mean, one of the best books I'd, I'd read about that period was, was Plum's book, and it's, a, it's not a, a very well-written book. <laughs> but it's a Mm. true story from the person himself. And that's why it means so much is because it came from him. Um, And the same goes for Billy's book, but with Gareth and uh, and this kind of stuff that you're doing with the play, it's coming from people who were actually there and lived it and and worn the t-shirt as such. Um, But that's why we started the podcast. It it really was because we were sick of people saying nobody tells our story. Um, And we we looked at different ways of how we tell our story. And this is the one we, we, we sort of came to that it was the best way forward. Um, but you'll probably know from researching the play and whatever else, people are very good to talk to you behind closed doors as such. And when it's not in the public eye, but the minute you want to go public or the minute you want to use names, they, they clam up. And I don't see why people from, from our community are, are so reluctant to come forward with this kind of stuff. You know, it's... It's it's yeah. not as if it's not out there in the public sphere already because it's, it's it's there. It's in the court records. It's in the newspaper reports. Uh, and for a lot of them, after they've served the time, they, they remain fodder for the papers. Yeah. There's stories there to be told, so yeah. it's yeah. there on paper already. Why don't they just come along and give their version? Because people people maybe don't want to hear, but it's something that we need to hear um, f- from these guys. How yeah. how do we do any more to encourage them to come forward?
2: I, well, Sam, I, I mean, uh, I agree with a hundred percent with what you're what you're saying. But the the, the short answer is, um, to to your end questioner is I'm not sure because I I have um I have initiated myself or part of um, long Case Inside right, where, where we encouraged XUVF or Red Hand Commandos to to engage? on a forum to express what they wanted to do I have also done it on a on a, uh, a closed Facebook page um called alma mater I've also done it tried to do it on a on a uh, forum called uh, postscriptum Latin for written after um and it's just a, it's a, I know that I know part of the reason is that the the press or the you know, the, the media here, get the hold of something and say, well, sure, you did this or you did that 50 years ago and that, that's fearful for people, people don't want to say their names in the paper, listen I'm going to get, probably going to get some stick over the next couple of weeks with within the mainstream media um including the papers, because of who I am because of what I did 50 years ago right, I can live with that I because personally I've experienced it, uh, fifteen years, fourteen years ago. You know, wh- whatever they're going to say about me is old, hand, uh, old, old, old stuff from 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 almost fifty years ago. I I can get over that there, and I, I, I but not everybody can, and I understand that. There's also there there's some great writing amongst acts. Well, you know, loyalist axe prisoners or loyalist ex-combatants who are reluctant to, to show their stuff because of the very reason I'm, I'm saying to you, oh, I don't want my name in the Sunday world, I don't want my name in the Sunday life. I said, but they can only put it in once. The rest of it's old hat. Get over it. You know, I get stuck. I know I know that. But I'm prepared for that. And I don't, I, you know, I'm not saying I don't have a problem with it because I don't like to see my family getting get press, but here, yeah, it is what it is. And, and until not many um, people are willing to, to come forward and, and and relate or tell their stories, and there's some great stuff where I can tell you, some great stuff.
3: Yeah, it, it's interesting because when, when we were up at the Act Building back in July for, you know, the mm-hmm. one of the plays, that you, or the screen play that you wrote, the um, Legacy Socratic's, the Wee mm. film. I know afterwards there was a uh, good chatter amongst a lot of the, uh, you know, old hands. And I remember, you know, I think you were there when Dick and Eddie were talking about this idea that some people yeah. live under the illusion that people don't know their pasts and, mm. you know, they sort of feel that they can carry on that way. And, and sort of, it's almost like, it's, a bit, it's not exactly the same, but it's the only analogy I can think of at the moment is, you know, if, if I'm telling uh, my daughter off, you know, if yeah. she, she, well, when she was younger, she used to think that if she stood facing away from me, that, mm-hmm. you know, she couldn't be seen, that she was invisible. But, you know, yeah. you can only do that for so long. And I, that's one of the things that I find really ultimately really tragic about the lack of support given the loyalists um explors well,
2: I, I I think uh, there's, there's, there's there's maybe a deeper or underlying reason behind that and and it sounds really base but um fr- from a Republican point of view they've had a legacy of imprisonment where we can only go back and I'm talking we from from loyalism to 1966 really you know so you don't you don't have that. Centuries of of um, of Republicans being um imprisoned or jailed or hanged or 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 um or, or, you know interned or whatever, and I I feel that's an, uh, that has an impact upon, and I also feel it had a, had an impact and still does have an impact on why um. The uh, the leg of the PUP or UDP didn't didn't flourish because there's always that underland saying that they're bad boys. You know, were um, from a Republican point of view, everybody knows we're bad boys, but you're taking for centuries. What's the difference? You know, it's, it's it's maybe I'm I'm not sure if you understand that, but
3: no, that's, certainly, certainly that's, yeah. No, it's really interesting because it's something, you know, I, I, I've I, written a wee bit about, you know, and it comes back to that idea of, you know, and I'll let Sam jump in after I make this point, but it's that idea that Sinn Féin, particularly, I always go back to this idea, Sinn Féin knew what they wanted to achieve, you know, around mm-hmm. the time of the hunger strikes. They had a strategy, and as you say, they leaned on the sort of historical idea of the struggle going back, you know, centuries, yeah. really. Um, of a colonial oppression, whereas loyalism mm-hmm. never had that and they were they were never able to develop that big moment yeah. particularly during during the recent um conflict where they could say right this is what we're going to lean on this is going to be the narrative and I suppose it comes back to that idea you know Republicans come back come out of jail uh, particularly provisional Republicans and they've got the support network of Sinn Fein yeah. and the sort of arms length bodies flow well, that around well, that and that's, that's good that's right. a good thing. Yeah, that's I mean, a good thing, in my opinion. So, loyalism hasn't done that. No, but if you if you look at it from a different perspective,
2: and that and and you're going to hear a lot of noise in the background here, some, some, but anyway, the, it just doesn't the, like my, my viewpoint. <laughs> is, uh, is that um, you take somebody like well, we're on the subject, Davy Irvine. Davy's probably the most popular loyalist politician of his past fifty years. Why did not get votes? Because he scraped through on almost every election. Why didn't I get votes? Simple. Yeah,
1: he, he wasn't successful in the first election. He went, was it 85? No,
2: council but, but even even and his last election, he virtually just got in. But the reason he didn't get votes is because you had um, people in that community saying, well, he's, he's UVF, man. He's next president. That's why. Yeah, but-
1: have, yeah, have and you it's, spoke it's, it's
2: a popular character, white people
1: have for. But it's, it's a shame thing, do you not know, mm-hmm. think, Beano, as well? We, we sort of carried that within the community. That if you went to prison or somebody you do went to prison, there was like a shame put on you yeah, where it, it was sort of well, not celebrated. Sense, right?
2: yeah, but it you was know, a shame, I think, for us. I, I said this on, on, on Friday on, on, on Talkback that I've lost count of the many times I went to residentials where I spoke to, for instance, all of the Republican groups from from ex President Tarawal, Tar Tarnal, Koista, Tarawalia, Tarstish, done the women's group from from um, Garvaki Road. You name it. I, I've been and sat and talked to them, and every one of them. And I'm not jo- I'm not joking about this here. Every one of them, the person said, "I wish we had Davy Irvin. I wish we had Davy Irving." You know why? Why is loyal? That say that you know, and that that was yeah. always a, a, a bit of a brick brickbat for me because you know you're you're sort of saying, you know, if only.
3: As you say? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of Davies' votes, even maybe, came, you know, second or third preference votes in those type of elections would have come from people like myself or other people yeah. in the Catholic community mm-hmm. who did retain a fondness for him. And it reminds me a wee bit of, you know, obviously Hutchie lost his seat there in the last election. And he, he told me at the time before, before the results came out, he talked about canvassing up around, you know, West Belfast and how nearly every door he went to people said, Hutchie, you're just what we need. We're sick of the DUP. We're never going to vote for them again. And he said to them, look, please don't say that because you're just getting my hopes up artificially. And of course it played out, you know, people, there is this sort of, I think there's, as you say, as Sam alluded to, there's maybe the sort of moral dilemma, the shame that, that goes with loyalist, um, militancy, yeah, that, but yeah, but, all, but also yeah. I think there's, you know, the feeling that it's whoever shouts strongest about the constitution ultimately will have to row in behind for this election. And it it's, I mean, you know, I think I maybe posted it on Twitter um a few months ago, but it was from one of the old UDA magazines from Nineteen seventy-one or seventy-two, and it was somebody writing in saying, "We'll never fall for these middle-class unions politicians again. We'll never fall for these people who shout about the constitution again." And we're like, yeah. you know, it's fifty. 50, 50 years later, yeah. And it's go- it's 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 just like a, what what Davy said. You know, he talked about the hamster wheel to hell with with the conflict, but it's like a, that's the hamster wheel of of loyalist politics, a conundrum. No,
2: it's, it's, that boils down, Gareth. That a lot of that boils down to the fear factor and the fear factor is that um, if, you know we, we, we need, you're actually voting to keep people out rather than to put the person you want in and and that that falls in the line with, with big, big house unionism I might not like him, I might think he's crap at what he does but if I vote for him he get in and that, that's what it, you know it, 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 it's the same thing, you know i you know, I've, I've spoke to people recently who, you know, I've, I've asked, you know, when, when, when Davy was up, did, did, did you vote? No, I didn't, I didn't, didn't vote for PUP, I just, just voted for DUP, UUP. Why, why would that be? And because I knew they would get in. You know, it's, it's just sort of nonsense that I, I don't know. It, it, it's so frustrating, particularly for me because I'm not overtly political. Um, but it just it's, the politics of Northern Ireland just gives me so much angst. That it's, it's unbelievable, honestly, and and that that falls into the category. Of what I'm saying is that people would rather vote for somebody they didn't even like or trust than somebody who maybe had a wee bit of a past. Yeah,
1: know at least Davy was open about his past.
2: No, yeah. exactly, you know what I mean, and and here here's here's the thing, um, Sam, that Dave Davey was, you know, he, he hid from nothing, he, he he was um, he was no different from from many hundreds, maybe thousands of people too. Here, you can't you not know to do, Google his name and get the newspapers from 1974. You'll see Davy was charged with A, B, and C. Like me, you can't deny it. I'm not saying you can embrace it, but at the same time, do not deny it and say, "Here's the reason why I thought I was right in doing what I did," and I would leave it at that. You know, I'm not here to justify, and I, this is what I was fearful of with with talk back on Friday, that I would maybe get sandbagged, um and get put on their corner. But but my answer would be. Listen, I was charged with something which was reprehensible. Um, it was wrong. I regret it. I pleaded guilty to it. I served fifteen years for it. I've come out, and I thought I'd done all right since it came out. What do you want me to do?
3: I think just just before Sam rounds off, you know, in a comment to me a while ago when you were talking about the justification or trying to motivate people to tell their stories. You, you you hit the nail on the head and I'll sort of paraphrase what you said. It was, you know, this is our story. You might not like it, mm-hmm. but it's out there now on the record and we're <laughs> telling it in our own terms.
2: You know, and without, be, and without being disrespectful to anyone, including especially yourself, Gareth, what you, you, you did Hutchie's book and you've done a great job of it. You've done good stuff with me. You've done other great stuff. You interviewed Davey Irvine as well as part of your thesis. Um what I would say is that to to fellow an inverted comments loyalists because um you know don't shy away and I'm not saying you know praise what you did. Don't shy away from what it because you can't change it. You can't you can't change that. But what, what you need to say is here is my motivations for whatever it was, the, the leg of you who have it has, and, and I would also look at the leg of Colonel Power to a certain extent, Peter Sherlow and, and Guy like are Aaron Edwards to a certain extent as well. But they have this, they have this interest, some more so than others, of working class loyalism. Some think they have a handle on it. In my opinion, they don't. But there's an interest. And I'm, and I mean that sincerely. From the like yourself and Conal, they understand working class loyalism better than a lot of loyalists. And I have confidence in them, probably more than I have in, in, a, in a lot of loyalists.
1: Well, Beto, we just want to thank you for coming on. We want to thank Green Shoe Productions. And just going to read out a few of your dates that are coming up just to get people ahead yep. of where they can see this play. Um, the Lyric Theatre from the 29th of August to the 10th of September. Then you're on the road for a bit with McNeil Theatre, Strand Arts yeah. Theatre, Down Arts Theatre, the Craig Theatre, the Newry Town Hall, the Braid Theatre, Island Arts Centre in Lisburn, mm. Theatre at the Mill, and then the Playhouse in Derryland. Yeah, and yeah you're on yeah, the road what, quite a bit.
2: One thing I would add there, Sam, so I'm not sure whether you're aware of the, the Strand um, Arts. Was down for the Thursday of 14th of September. Mm-hmm. It sold out quite quickly. So they've added a new date, which is Tuesday, the 12th of September,
0: That's which fantastic. I'm
2: also hearing, is almost sold out. Brilliant. Brilliant, Bino. Brilliant. We'll,
3: we'll be in the Lyric on Friday night. Yes, we'll be in the Lyric. Front row, it's Bino eh?
2: Thanks, Thanks for the warning. But <laughs> <laughs> with, 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 with a sniper in the roof, so don't worry.
3: The you thing Lord. is
2: that I, I think on the Tuesday, the opening night, I I think yeah. it sold out at twelve, and um, we we're able to um, from from what I, from what I believe, overall there was five thousand two hundred tickets up for grabs. Um yesterday, I spoke to Martin
3: Lynch and. There were three thousand nine hundred sold. Oh, amazing! Brilliant. That's uh, you know, well deserved for all your hard work over the years, you know. Because I mean, I've known you for over ten years now, and I know how hard you work at this. So you know, it's richly deserved.
2: No, well, here, yeah, thank, thank you, and thank thanks Sam for here and best wishes for the wee podcast. I know it's um, it's never easy, and you're always looking for for um for People that, that have a, a story to tell or or uh, an interesting side. Um, and I'm happy to, to work with the family too. Thanks a lot. Thank dude. you, Pino. Many Cheers. thanks. Good night. Good night, Good night. night.